0: Welcome to Systematic Theology. We're now entering into a new section of Systematic Theology. So if it's your first time, welcome. First time in a while, welcome back. We've been studying Bibliology and now we're on Theology Proper. Let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning and the time we have together for this class. Thank you for all the classes happening in this building right now and the nursery where there's little children being taken care of. We thank you that you continue to, to grow this body, not just in numbers, but in depth. We understand your, your word better, Lord. And through classes, classes like this, we get built up in the faith. So I pray that you would help us to understand your existence, to understand who you are. And while we can't fully understand you, God, we can't truly know you. And so I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself through your word to us as we grow in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, we are entering this new section, as I said, Theology Proper. If you're reading along in your book, that's around page 151. And the schedule today is to cover the first of these, the existence of God. But when you talk about the category of theology proper, most books that cover theology, systematic theology, We'll talk about all of these categories I have listed on the screen. The existence of God, the names of God, which some might skip over or be really short. But the names are important. The names of God tell us about who He is. So we'll look at that next week. The attributes of God are sometimes called the perfections of God. This is about the attributes. Really, perfections, I think, is a better term. It's who God is. What what qualities does He display? And what does He exhibit in his nature of who he is. The Trinity, we're Trinitarian Christians, Trinitarian monotheists. So that's a key doctrine. In fact, one of the most common heresies, even amongst Christian cults, is to deny the Trinity. Then the decree of God. If you've been with us in Romans 9, you've been learning a lot about the decree of God lately. This is God's decree of what comes to pass. And then creation is also considered under theology proper because it's God who creates. Uh, Divine miracles are really short section usually in systematic theologies because that comes back up when you're talking about the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts. Divine providence, God's providence is sovereignty over nature, his sovereignty over the universe. Not necessarily in salvation, but in all other things. And then he is sovereign in salvation, but that's a different. That's soteriology that we'll come to later. The problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? If God is all these things we say He is, He's good, He's righteous, He's just. Why is there evil at all in the world? And then the last section in the book here is on glorifying God. And not every systematic theology is focused on application. I like MacArthur and Mayhew's book because they always have a concluding section on how to apply what you've learned. And what is our response to learning about God? What should our response be once we've learned all this information, this knowledge about God, how should we respond? And the best response is to glorify God, to thank Him, to do the things that the people in Romans 1 that are being described did not do. They did not glorify God. When they learn something about God, the natural man does not glorify God. So this is our trek that we're on until January 21st. And then the next week, January 28th, Systematic Theology 2 starts where we cover the next topic. Okay, so let's talk about God's existence. I really like this picture I put up here. Not because it's cool, although it is. This is a James Webb telescope picture here. I guess you call it a picture. It's an image that the telescope took of a star cluster called M92. M92, M stands for Messier, which is a a guy who first started finding things in astronomy. and Since then, they've named things after him that don't already have a name. So M92 is a star cluster. How many stars do you think are in that cluster? We couldn't even see this many stars until we had the James Webb Telescope in space. Well, there's trillions out there in the universe. This one, in this image right here, is 330,000 stars. 330,000 stars. And that's, they can estimate kind of what's contained in a cluster, but they couldn't see it until you get better imaging ability. And so the Bible says that the stars, the heavens, declare the glory of God. They teach us something about God. In fact, in Isaiah, and you'll see this kind of language throughout the Old Testament, thus says, Yahweh, your Redeemer. So there's a connection here from the Redeemer, the one who saves, the personal God, Yahweh, and the one who formed you from the womb. So this is your Creator God and your Redeeming God. He says, I, Yahweh, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens. So there's the term that's used a lot in the Old Testament to describe God. He stretches out the heavens by Myself. He didn't have help with that. He didn't have a council of gods, as sometimes people talk about, a heavenly council. No, it was God himself. And in He spreading out the earth all alone. So God created the earth, but he also created that 330,000 stars and the trillions upon trillions of stars we can't even see, the planets, everything, the nebula, everything that you can see, he created it all. And the reason this comes up it's because all of us, when we look at that in, in the night sky, if we can see it around here, we just think, wow, that's amazing. I mean, when we see the little Starlink thing fly by, once you get over, it's not a UFO. We think that's, that's kind of neat. Man made that. But look at what God made all by himself. You know, how, how many, I, I don't know, I don't follow. What's, what's the company that put the Starlink up? How many people worked on that project? A lot, right? And they probably have to keep it going, and they probably have a whole team of people to keep it going. God made this, and He's the only one that keeps it going. That's amazing. And this is just a tiny little dot. This is you can't—I don't even know if you can see this with the eyes. It's just a little fuzzy dot when you look up at night. God stretched out the heavens. The idea is, is sometimes it's like a curtain in the Old Testament, like a curtain. He stretched out the expanse of the heavens, like a curtain in your tent. It's just no big deal to God. It's like putting up a sheet, you know, hanging it out to dry. He created the heavenly stars, planets, all of those things. So that's something to remind us of God's existence. In fact, Romans 1 will tell us and Psalm 19 will tell us that this tells us about God. The fact that the stars are there and they're amazing like they are and they're beautiful tells us about God's existence. So apologies if you were in my apologetics class. I didn't mean it to sound like it's a pun, right? Apologies if you're in my apologetics class a year ago because this is going to be reviewed. The existence of God is a major apologetic issue that we have to answer often with unbelievers. And that's what we're talking about today. So I'm using the same content almost that I had there. There are different views of God out there right now in the world and there has been since the fall. You have pantheism and this is that the universe, nature, and God are the same. So, Stoics of Paul's day believe this. Today, some Unitarian Universalists believe this. It is a little bit more rare, but typically people just go worship the tree and don't even call it God. Today, you might see that more often, but this is the belief that everything out there that we can see is the same as God. So, you, you know, God is, God is in that bush, and He is that bush, and God is that blade of grass, and He is that cloud. And so, that's trying to contain God in something we can see. So this was a very popular in ancient Greek society and Roman society. Panentheism, the universe is part of God. So God's bigger than all those things, but that he's also here in the in the tree and in the sky and in the pulpit and in the carpet. And this is kind of like his body, if you wanted to think of it that way. The, the things you can see, that's God's body. And then God is also more than that. So he's elsewhere as well. This is very popular today in, in other religions. Hinduism believes this. The North American native people. So the American Indians, this is, this is all of their religion. The great spirit in the sky. The great spirit that, you know, some people want to say, well, that's, that's the God of the Bible. See, when white man arrived, they already knew about the great spirit. Well it turns out the Bible says everybody knows about God. So that's not quite as a surprise as people think. The problem is because of sin... They get it wrong. They know that there is a God and then they twist that God to their own liking. Christian process theology. These are people that believe God is changing. That God is like us. They call themselves Christians. They're very Arminian Christians. And they say that God is changing. He's very similar to us. He's like humans. He changes his mind. He changes what he thinks. He's learning. He's growing. He's in a state of process or progress. Gnosticism, which was popular and then it wasn't, now it is again. Uh, Gnosticism, that there's a secret knowledge out there, and only the true, 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 super true believers who have the inside knowledge. This is a lot like the Masonic Lodge kind of thinking. It's not exactly Masonic Lodge, but if you come in and get initiated, then you get the secret knowledge, and then you could be a real Christian, and you have to read the Gnostic books, like I mentioned, I think two weeks ago, the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Thomas, and These false gospels that turned up from ancient times. Kabbalism, which is a magic Jewish belief system. Uh, Ismaili, Shi'i, Muslim. So all of these groups believe that the creation is part of God. Not that God upholds creation. That's biblical. Not just that God created it all, but that that is God or part of God. And that God transcends that, but he has an existence in the creation as well. And then polytheism, I think we're probably more familiar with that because that goes back to the Greek and Roman times. Ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, Egyptians, pagans. Modern Wiccans today, though, believe in many gods. And Hindus, of course, have many gods. You could add Mormons, in a sense, to this. Mormons are really Gnostics, but they're also polytheists because you can become a god. If you can become a god, then there's billions of gods, basically, out there. So, they're the most polyistic uh, religion today, Mormonism. But these are often the ones we think about when we think of other religions. But just remember, panentheism is, is also very common as well. So, these are the wrong views of God. And they, they know God exists, but they think of Him in their own way, in their own terms. This is why as a Christian, you should never say, well, I like to think of God as, you know, the old country song is, I like to think of God as love and You'll hear your friends say, well, I like to think of God as a certain way. I like to think of God as so loving. He would never send people to hell. What just happened? That person created God in their own image, in their own mind. Not the God of, of the Bible, but the God that they wanted to form in their own mindset. And that's where all these false religions come from. No, you know, you could say, well, it's demonic and the demons had an influence. Sure, the demons have an influence on people today too. And so when your friend says, well, God... God would never do that. He would never punish people. He's a loving God. Well, that's a demonic influence in a sense, too, because people think of God and create God in their own minds, and they don't go to scripture to find out who God is. Deism. So, this is what passes as American Christianity, but it's really not. God created the world, but does not intervene within it, He's the supreme architect. He designed it all. He set it up. He wound up the, the clock and just let it go. Very popular during the Enlightenment when our nation was was born, 17th, 18th centuries. They reject miracles and scripture. The major proponents like John Locke, Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin probably would classify here, Thomas Jefferson certainly, the Masons today. I think most Americans, most Americans, I believe in God. Of course I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Well, the Turns out everybody believes in God, so you haven't really accomplished anything by believing in God. That's that's a inborn thing, you know? You believe in God the, the second you come out of the womb. Before that, you know, you don't realize it. So most Americans believe in a God. The question is, what kind of God? Well, yeah, the, the God of the Bible, but he doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He's not sovereign over things. He's not. He doesn't care about the day-to-day stuff. He doesn't care about the big stuff. That's up to us. He just set things in motion and stepped back. He's the absentee God, as what some would call him. And then monotheism is a little bit more specific. That's the belief in one God. So Christianity would be considered in the monotheistic belief in God, uh, but so would Judaism and Islam and the Bahai, if I say that rightly. So we're getting closer to the the biblical view of God, but we're not close enough because Judaism uh, does not understand Trinitarian God that the scripture reveals and uh, Islam certainly doesn't either. So here's the biblical view. Trinitarian monotheism. So we'll go into the Trinity later, but when it comes to the existence of God, it's not enough just to say, somebody to say, I believe in God. Trinitarian monotheism believes in a triune God. The Trinity. Three persons in one Godhead. Who rejects this? Well, people who are called Christadelphians. Anybody heard of the Christadelphians? Christadelphians. They sound like Christians. They have a nice little white building with the old clapboard look. And they're actually, yeah, heretics. Jehovah's Witnesses. Unitarians. Oneness Pentecostals. You've got to realize when you're talking to a Pentecostal, are they a oneness Pentecostal or just an everyday, average Joe Pentecostal? Christian Science. Mormons? Mormons will talk about Trinity sometimes with a lowercase t, but they mean three separate gods if they if they mention that. So and sometimes Christian science will talk about that, right? There's the there's the science and the father and the the three things, three ways, whatever. But Trinitarian monotheism, the God of Scripture, is who we're talking about there. So We're talking about the existence of God, but realize whenever you're talking with an unbeliever who denies God's existence, or maybe they have some belief in God's existence, that doesn't mean they're a Christian. It doesn't mean they get the the rubber stamp going to heaven just because they believe in God. And this is, most of us who grew up in in the U.S., we're dealing with people who say they believe in God, and that's good. I mean, I grew up believing in God. I went to church, and maybe I heard the name Jesus. There we go of course I would go to heaven. I believe. And people will say, you, you say, do you believe? Oh yeah, I believe in God. Now, do you believe in Jesus? Oh yeah, I believe in God. I've actually gone through this with sometimes people who come and visit. Do you believe in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ? Oh yeah, I believe in God. And they never use the name Jesus. They just keep talking about God because it's very vague. You know, all of these people believe in God, don't they? But you get very specific. You say Jesus or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if they don't want to go that direction, then you kind of know where you're you're starting with evangelism. Okay, Psalm 14. Get out your Bibles. Let's look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is in the Old Testament. And I may even have it here. Yeah, I've got most of the verses on the screen. Psalm 14 teaches us about God's revelation. So we won't go into all the verses. Just the first three verses here. A Psalm of David. And this is special revelation, so it's the Bible. But the assumption here is that in general revelation, everybody knows God. So if you were here for that class a few weeks or months ago now, we talked about special revelation. That's scripture. That's God talking to his people. General revelation is is nature, the creation, the conscience, the things that God has built into the universe so that we all know about him. So Psalm 14, the wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. So this is the atheist. The atheist says there is no God. But this verse alone, if you just look at verse 1, it tells us why this person doesn't believe in God. Is it because they've studied philosophy and looked into the mysterious things of the world or because they have split the atom or, or studied quarks or you know all of these things that people do? No, why? Why do they think there is no God? It tells you in the verse, doesn't it? How many times? Three times. It tells you the reason behind someone saying there is no God. They're wicked. Or you could say four times if you count fool as a separate description, right? They're a wicked fool. A fool in the Old Testament is a sinner. A fool is not somebody who, you know, goes out in the snow and, you know, gets really cold. And because they slept out in the snow for fun or... Some silly thing like that. No, this is somebody who is a sinner running from God. They're a fool because they won't listen to the word of God. They're wicked. They act corruptly. This talks about their actions. And then they commit abominable deeds. They go around sinning. They're sinners who sin. And so to get away from that in their own minds, what do they do? Oh, there is no God. It doesn't matter what we do. Who are you to judge? Right? No one judges me. There is no God. Atheists believe there is no God for a reason. Not because their study of science has led them to believe that. In fact, if you study science, where does that point? Where does that lead? It leads to God. And there is no one who does good. Does that sound familiar? Where's that from? Psalm 14? Where is it quoted? Romans 3. Paul quotes it and he says, look, everyone's a sinner. So really, before we come to Christ... Everyone's a practical atheist, right? Not wanting to believe there's a God. I mean, we know our conscience tells us, our parents, maybe if we grew up in the church, we read the Bible, it tell, you know, but we don't want to believe that. We don't want to submit ourselves to that. It's a hard thing for us. It weighs on our shoulders. So we say, yeah, I'm not sure I believe in God. And then you go on living your sinful life, right? There's no one who does good. And this is proof of it. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men. Everybody, he's created. Mankind. To see if there's anyone who has insight. You ever heard the person who says, well, some people are born good and some are born bad. Well, here, here it is. God's looking around to see, is there really anybody who has real understanding of the ways of God? Is there anyone who seeks after God? I mean, there's a lot of churches that are seeker-friendly churches today. Is there anyone who seeks after God? Well, here's the answer. They've all turned aside. Altogether, they have become worthless. Altogether, they have become worthless. Maybe there's one. No, not one. Paul really emphasizes that in Romans 3. But here too, altogether, that's everybody. They have all. That's everybody. Altogether, they have become worthless. Worthless. Not in typical way we use the word, but worthless here is indicating more along the lines of they're not useful to God. They're not glorifying Him. Now, we know in Romans 9, they're useful. In a sense, unbelievers are Because they ultimately let him display his power and wrath. That's Romans 9 that we looked at last week in the sermon. But here he's saying they're they're not serving the Lord. They're not serving the purpose for which they they were created which was to serve the Lord and glorify him. There is no one who does good not even one. There's got to be some unbelievers who do good right? Well they, they can do good to you in a sense. They can bring you a meal if you're sick and give you a gift and give you Christmas presents and They can, you know, walk an old lady across the street and things like that. But it's not done for God's glory. It's done for what? Man's glory. Man's glory. It's done for themselves. Even if they're really trying to serve the community, right? It's it's so that they will be recognized in the communities or so that they will feel good about themselves. It's not for God's glory. Now go back to Psalm 10. So here, why, why do people not believe in God? For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire. So this is, a, this is a sinful man who is bragging, he's boasting on what he desires, what he wants in his life, his will, his decisions, his choosing, the things he likes. And the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. So this is the same person here, greedy. They're greedy because they want what they want and I want more of it. And they curse God, they spurn God. So we have to get very clear when we're talking to unbelievers. We cannot just simply say, well, they said they love God, but then their whole life is actually rejection of God. Their whole life. Or their language. Or, Or the way they talk about God is actually rejecting Him. You can't just listen to somebody say, oh yeah, I follow God, and then they're acting like this. The wicked boast of his soul's desire, wanting to do what he wants. What does he want? Well, he wants more of what pleases him. So that's greedy. He's actually cursing and spurning Yahweh. Sometimes people actually do curse God out, outright. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Now, isn't that funny? He's cursing God, but at the same time he's really saying there is no God. Isn't that what atheists do? Don't they say, well, I'm here to prove to you there is no God. And then all they do is talk about God. It's like trying to you know, say, well, I don't believe in the, the, the tooth fairy, but I'm going to spend all day trying to prove to you the tooth fairy doesn't exist. Well, if the tooth fairy doesn't exist, let's go on and move on. You know, who cares? They're spending all their efforts talking about the God they say they don't believe. What's the real problem? The real problem is in the heart. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. Mankind is sinful. They want to excuse themselves from God's judgment. They want to get out from under the wrath of God. And the easiest way these days, right? And back then too, just tell yourself it's not true. That's easy, right? That's like somebody walking in the interstate, trying to cross the interstate, closing their eyes. It's not an interstate. It's not an interstate. What's going to happen? They get smacked by a truck and die. Well, God's going to show people someday that their ignorance or their blinding of themselves towards Him isn't really real. They already know that in their hearts, though. So, let's go on. We know God exists, and we'll look at some of those verses. But let's ask a bigger question. Can God even be known? Because you have the atheists who say there is no God. And the Bible says there's really not any atheists. Then you have the agnostic. And the agnostic says, well, yeah, there's a God. There's a creator, obviously. But we can't really know him. Right? This is, this is along the lines of deism. You, you kind of wind up the clock. God wind, he wound up the clock and let it go. There's not much we can know about him. Who are you? It kind of goes like this. Who are you to think you can learn anything about God, the creator of the universe? Right? can't really know. Maybe some, some agnostics say, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't. Others say, well, God exists. A soft agnostic will say, God exists. We can't know anything about him. So just the fact that he exists doesn't help us at all. Let's look at some verses on this in the New Testament. Go to Acts 14. Can God be known? If there is a God, do you think people can know him? You know, you know how a lot of Christians try to convince atheists that there is a God? They get out a list of things that are awesome. You know, that God created there's nothing necessarily wrong to think like that and talk like that. But if it's a heart problem, if it's a heart problem, giving a list of scientific facts that show God's wonders in creation isn't going to change somebody's heart. We need to get to the root of the issue. You don't believe in a God because you're sinful. You have sin. It's not been dealt with. And you're rejecting God for that reason. So Acts 14, 17 though shows us that everyone knows there is a God and we can know him. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. This is talking about God and this is Paul preaching here. He did not leave himself without witness in that he, God, did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is God's providence. We'll look at this specifically later, but God did not leave himself without witness. What's the witness? The food that you eat. The rains that grow the food, and where do those come from? Heaven. Oh no, that's the clouds and all the, you know, what's that called? Meteorology. We all know, we know how that happens, right? When's the last time you made a cloud? I'm not talking about a little puff of smoke in your yard, right? When's the last time you started a cold front and brought it across the U.S.? See, people think because we've studied it and we can kind of map some things out, that we can, oh, we know it doesn't come from God. No, we don't. We just know how it works once God has created it and sent it along its way, we study it. God has given witness. Gladness. Gladness is a witness to God. The fact that anybody can have joy in a sinful, broken world, even for one second, shows you that there is a God. That's a witness to Him. Skip forward to Acts 17.24. Can we know that God exists? Yeah, it's all over the Bible and it's all over creation. Acts 17.24 the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So Paul's preaching to these great philosophers on, on Mars Hill in Athens. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands. So this is a God that is not reliant upon you serving him. That's what the, the pagans believe. You have to serve the God. Who, he needs food. He needs a place to sleep. He needs a temple to live in so on. As though he needed anything. That's not a, that's not the true God. He doesn't need anything. He's That's one of his attributes, right? He's independent. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So he doesn't need anything. And the proof of that is that he gives everybody else everything. If he needed something, he couldn't give everybody else everything, including life and breath. And verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So God is... Created everyone and he's determined their boundaries and their times and everything. And then verse 27, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. I thought there were no seekers after God. What is Paul describing? He's not contradicting himself because he wrote in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for the true God is what he meant in Romans 3. Here what he's saying is, you know God exists and you know you're a sinner and you want, you want to find, in some sense, a way out of that. You want to find the God who can help you out of that. Now, they don't. I mean, he's, he's being really kind to the, the pagans here. He's, he's, he's being winsome and gracious. You know, he's not coming out and saying, you awful pagan, wicked sinners. You're going to hell today. Repent. Now, he's going to get to that. And they, they, they cut him off as soon as he talks about the resurrection. But he starts off by saying, look, here's what we have in common. What do we have in common? Well, we both believe that God exists. We know God exists. Here's how you know God exists. You know he exists because he made the world and all things in it. And he's Lord of the heavens and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples and so on. And he even points to, a, to an unknown God statue that they have. So they know, they know there's, there's a God out there that did all these things. Now eventually he would get to the sinful part and they don't like it when he talks about the resurrection. But 1724 shows... That everyone knows there's a God who made the world. Hebrews eleven six. 6. You can't even be a true believer unless you say God exists. Think about that. And this, this applies to evangelism as well. Yeah, you can't even draw near to God unless you believe that He is. And we know everybody believes that He exists. But that's the foundation for which we are to tell people of salvation. So, so here's how that applies. You're talking to someone. And, and when I was young... The idea in America was everybody knew God. Or they knew who God was. They'd heard something about God. And so you just jumped to talking about the gospel or Christ, right? You didn't go through the first couple of steps of the, you know, the four points of the gospel. You just said, well, here's Jesus. Do you have Jesus in your life? And you start talking about Jesus. You can't do that today. Where do you have to start today? There is a God. Even though they know that in their heart, they have to face it. There is a God. There is a God who created you. There is a God who's coming back to judge you. There is a Lord is the God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and so on. But first, there is a God. And then the second point of the, this is on our website, the second one is, God created us, and mankind has fallen, and we're sinful. We've disobeyed God. We deserve the wrath of God. Those were the two that in southern, we'll just say the southern part of America, at least when I was growing up. Anybody else agree? Everybody kind of knew there's a God, and We're sinful. And people, even unbelievers agreed with that. They would say, there's a God, He's righteous, and we're sinful, and we're just going to go live in sin because it's fun, but we'll hide it. Now, sin's in your face, and there's no God. So that's what people are saying today. We've got to go back and start with the basics with unbelievers. Find out where they're at. Don't just jump into, you know, John three sixteen. Go back and say, you know, tell me about your relationship with God. Oh, God who, they say. Okay, let's go into... But the Bible has to say then. Psalm 19. This is the verse on everyone knowing that there is a God. Romans 1 and 2 and 3, but also Psalm 19. All right, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The heavens. That's the stars I put up earlier. That's the moon. That's the sun. The sky really is also the heavens in the Bible. Everything tells about a God. The God of creation. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens. And in circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So God created all these things. All of these. Everyone knows there is God. Who exists that doesn't live under the heaven? Right? So far, nobody's being born in outer space. But you know what? The Bible encompasses that too. Because the heavens, the heavens, plural, are three different descriptions in the Bible. The sky, outer space, and where God is. So you can't, people try to come up with these, well, what about the person who's born in outer space? You know, what about the person who's on an island in the middle of nowhere by himself? And I always liked it. Oh, my seminary professor, jokingly, he was a pastor too. And he said, why don't we just put him on an island? Let's put him a hundred miles below the earth in a cave in darkness. Doesn't matter, right? He knows there is a God. Why? Because of creation. Because of creation. People throw these things at you to try to stump you as a Christian. What about the guy who's never heard of God? Is he go into hell too? Anybody heard that one? The one who's... Ne- the, 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 the pygmy in the jungle in Africa. Is he going to hell? Why? Because of sin, right? Well, he's never heard of Jesus. But is he a sinner? Why do people go to hell? Because they're sinners. A lot of people have never heard of Jesus. There's a lot of people in hell already. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their sin. They all know there's a God, though. And we'll come to that in Romans 1.18, specifically what their sin is. But I think we realize what sin is. Verse 7 here, Romans nineteen seven. the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So this now talks about God's word. The first six verses of Psalm 19, that's general revelation. That's the creation. The creation speaks of God existing and creating all these wonderful things. Then his word, obviously, speaks of God. 7 through 14 deals with that. So David was showing us both. Let's look now at Romans 1.18. I'm just going to summarize it because we don't have time to go all the way through it. I did preach for a long time on Romans 1, if you can believe that. If you can believe that I spent a year in Romans 1. Was it a year? Close. So God has revealed something in Romans 1. Let's at least read the first verse. Romans 1.18. God has revealed something. And revealed something means he showed people this. And that he's doing it. Not just that he's judging though, but that he's... Revealing something about himself. Because Paul says, our, our, Paul's mission and really the church's mission is to reveal the righteousness of God through the gospel. Why? Because verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is right now being revealed. And Paul's day and today, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Romans 3 tells us that's everybody. Everybody suppressing the truth, God's truth. The truth of who he is is where it starts here though. Verse 19, because of that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So what about the guy who's in a jungle, who lives by himself in a cave and a hole in the ground, and he's blind? That which is known about God is evident within them. Why? For God made it evident to them. So here's the problem. Here's why we need the gospel. Verse 18, all men are under the wrath of God right now. Not the future wrath of God, although that's coming too. But there's an there's a abandonment wrath where God r- removes himself from people so that they do get hardened. And we've been looking at that in Romans 9 as well. They suppress the truth. They do it in unrighteousness. They do it by sinning. They do it by saying there is no God. They do it by living a life of sin. Verse 19, that which is known, currently is known about God. Not just what was known at creation, not what was known in ancient times, all the time, present tense. What is known about God is evident in them. Not that which may be known, because he made it known. See, when you say there's people out there who aren't held responsible because they never had a Bible and they never heard Christ, you just undid missions in the Great Commission, right? I mean, if they're, not, if they're not under the wrath of God, if they're not going to hell for their sin, then why do we need to take the gospel to them? So they can have their best life now? That's not really a, a gospel message, is it? It's, it's their best life in eternity is what we're shooting for with the gospel, right? Because they worship the Lord and serve him and glorify him. All mankind, Paul says. That's, in other words, if you don't get Romans 1 right, the rest of Romans doesn't make sense. All these people memorize the Romans road verses and that's wonderful. But to get Romans right, you have to understand what he's saying in chapter 1. What he's saying is, here's why I take the gospel to the world. Because they all know who God is and they continue to sin against him. How do they know who God is? He made it evident to them. Verse 20 goes on to talk about his attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen. In other words, that's enough right there. Just just knowing that God exists, that he created us, knowing about his attributes, knowing about his power, it's eternal, his divine nature, that's the God you should worship, the God who created you. And Paul says in verse 20, it's very important, they are without excuse. He's talking about everybody Outside of the, of the Jewish faith. Now, chapter 2 talks about Jews in the Old Testament and in Paul's day. They had the Bible. They had the Bible. So, it's a little bit different, but still, he goes on to say, they're still sinners too. But they've sinned, in a sense, in light of the Bible. They had the scriptures. Gentiles did not have the scriptures until Christ came and the gospel went out to the nation. So, everyone's without excuse. What about the person who's never heard the gospel? They have sinned. They knew something about God. He made sure that they would know something about him. And yet they still did not do what they should have done. Even though they knew God, what should they have done? Well, they did not honor him or give thanks. And really, I think the better translations in the LSB glorify him. Not just honor, but, but glorify him. They did not give him glory. They took the glory for themselves. Look what I did. Look what I created. Look at my children that I made. You know, look at my house. Look at my kingdom. Look at my crops. Look at what I've done. Look at my gold. Look at my statues I made to worship. They know the ordinance of God. Now this goes even further. What, what do unbelievers know that have never read a Bible or heard of Jesus Christ? What do they know? Well, they know of plenty, right? They know enough to condemn them. They know enough to not be excusable. They know God exists. They know something about him, some of his attributes. They know the ordinance of God. Look at this, verse 32. Let's, let's read the whole verse. And although they know the ordinance of God, what ordinance? Well, here, here's what the ordinance deals with. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What is that? Verse twenty-nine or 28 and 29, right? And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. So that's part of his wrath right now is he gives them over to more sin. They can just run into their sin headlong. There's your your free will as an unbeliever is to keep on going into more sin. To do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know that those things are wrong, they know the ordinance of God. Not that they have the Old Testament memorized or the Ten Commandments, but they know what is right and what is wrong. And they know that those things right there in that that list, those verses, are wrong. And they still did them. They knew who God was. They knew something about God. They knew the difference between right and wrong. They still did the wrong. And even worse than that, we think today is bad, but it's always been like this in some sense they give hearty approval to those who practice them. It wasn't enough that they sinned themselves, but when they saw other people sin, they were celebrating it. They were having a parade. They were calling it Pride Month. And this has been going on and off throughout the history of mankind. So God can be known, even by the person who's never read their Bible. Can God be truly known? Yes. Yes. Not fully known, but he can be truly known. And this has to be the case. Otherwise, we could not. Truly doesn't mean completely here. It just means a, a true knowledge, an accurate knowledge, a right knowledge of God. If we don't have that, we can't be saved. First John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's knowledge an understanding so that we may know him who is true. So the agnostic says we can't really know God. Not the true God. Not in a good way. Not in the right way. The Bible says we can through Christ Jesus, the Son. We can have an understanding of who God is, a right and proper understanding, and a true understanding. And we are in Christ as the believer. So who knows God? The believer knows God. Knows God in a saving relationship. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God in eternal life. So the the true regenerate believer can never, ever agree and say, we cannot really know God. You can't say we cannot truly know God. We can know God. We can know him through his word and we obviously know he exists through creation. Jeremiah 9.24 But let him who boasts, boasts in this that he understands and knows me that I am Yahweh who who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things. So if you want to brag as a Christian bragging that you know God not because of anything that you've done but boast in that God is glorious that God is merciful. That's today's passage that, we're gonna, that I'm going to be preaching. God is merciful. His great mercy. It's all of God. You know, someone was telling me yesterday about the golf thing, you know, this, this is a newer church. It's only six or seven years old. It's, it's really grown quite a bit, you know, in, in seven short years. He said that many newer churches he's been to were churches that weren't that big in seven years. And I said, I don't know. What's all of God? What can we say? You know, you guys keep coming back and you've doubled in the last year and Two years? It's all of God. What are we going to do? we Are going to boast? Right? Was it my good looks? Was it Frank's golf swing that brought him back? What was it? Our carpet? You know? The place out front with all the diesel trucks. I mean, it's God. God does it. God brings people here. God grows his church. We just have to be faithful. Okay, I'm getting off top. So you can know God. In other, in other words, to truly know him is to know who he has revealed himself to be. Who he is in the scriptures. So we can truly know him, but not through other means. We know him through Christ the Son. So here's A.W. Pink. The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be clear mental apprehension of his perfection. So how do you know God? As a Christian, you want to grow in your knowledge of God. Right? Paul prays for that in Ephesians 1. That we would grow in our knowledge of him. How? In his perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. Everyone knows there is a God, but we're not everyone. We're God's people. We're the church. We're Christians. We're going to study God's Word to grow in our knowledge of Him. That's one of the reasons we're doing this class, one of the reasons we're going to cover the attributes of God soon. That's how you learn about God. You learn who He is. Jonathan Edwards says, I think the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll come to later, to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. So what he's saying is, you want to know God? Study the Trinity. That, that's a deep knowledge of God. Not a Gnostic kind of deep, but a, a true biblical depth of God. Be able to describe the Trinity without saying heresy <laughs> to the unbeliever. That's harder than you think. You've got to know your Bible, know your verses. You can believe in the Trinity, but still mess up in how you describe the Trinity. So... That's where you have to know their Bible, know your Bible, know theology. Okay, so that's different, though, than this question. Can God be fully known? Can God be fully known? Let's just think of it logically before I show you some verses. I think you know the answer. Fully is comprehensive, right? Complete. If a person could fully know everything about God and everything God knows, what would that make you? God. So I don't know who would say such a thing. But I guess people who've made God really puny and man really big. God is infinite. You know what infinite means? Not finite. There's no measure for infinite. It's just not finite. We are finite, right? We we have a lifespan. You can measure a human, right? We can't measure a soul, but even a soul is finite in a sense. There was a time where we were created. God is infinite. So we can never understand God fully. Just for that one fact right there. And that's really what Paul's been doing in Romans 9, hasn't it? Who are you, oh man? You're not like God. You can't understand God's ways. You can't judge God. You can't put God on the dock. We're finite. God is infinite. That's what it means. Incomprehensible is unable to be fully understood. God is incomprehensible in the sense that we will not fully understand him. We can understand what he tells us about himself. He gets to decide what to tell us. And he's done that in the Bible. He's done that in general revelation. He gets to tell us about himself. We don't get to tell him about himself. Isn't that silly? But how often sometimes we even do that as Christians, right? We want to tell God what he should do. We want to tell God how he should handle this situation. Now, God, if it's your will, if it's your will, Lord, this is what I see. This is what I would ask to be done. But he's God. Some people get offended. You know, you're you're praying for a loved one who's really suffering. And if it's your will, Lord, extend their life. Whoa. Why would you ever say that, right? We're supposed to pray, God save their life. Tell him what to do. That's presuming upon God. If it's your will, God, save this person. Man, the Arminian gets really upset at that. If it's your will, of course it's God's will that everyone would be saved. Well, is it? And let's stop and... Give God the room to exercise His freedom, and not start telling God what to do. Okay, I'm preaching at you instead of doing a class. You got to watch that. Psalm one forty five three, Psalm one forty seven five, Isaiah forty twenty eight, Job eleven seven, and then Romans eleven thirty three. Do y'all know that one? I just quoted it last week, I think. All these verses speak of God's incomprehensibility inscrutable, unscrutable, all these different words that are used in the Bible, unsearchable. That means we can't fully know God. But it's a, it's a sinful tendency that we sometimes have, thinking we can know the mind of God. And we can't. His greatness is unsearchable. We don't know the boundaries of it, in other words. It, it's unsearchable. It, it goes beyond what we can even imagine. You can't search it out. His discernment, his mind, How many times do we want to know everything about a situation? Like Job, right? Lord, just tell me why this happened and why you did this and why you did this with this family member and why I lost this job and why this person had to die before they were saved. Lord, you tell me now. His understanding is unsearchable. Love that passage because Israel at the time, they're saying in in their captivity, so Isaiah is looking in the future. They're saying, you know, God's forgotten about us. Woe is me. You know, God... It's kind of like some of us today, right? Today, God's just forgotten about me. I'm going to stay home, not go to church. That'll make me feel better. <laughs> said, no one, well, if you come to church and you felt really bad and then you make yourself come, you always know afterwards what worshiping the Lord can do. But I'm not talking about when you're puking, obviously. When you're just down, right? Woe is me. No one understands me. That's how we say it today, right? And, and sometimes we think, we wouldn't say this, we think God, God just doesn't understand me. And he says to Israel, don't you know, have you not read in the Bible? Have you not picked up your Bible lately and read who I am? I'm not tired. I didn't take a nap and forget about you. He is the one who never goes tired. He never sleeps. His ways are unsearchable, inscrutable. They can't be scrutinized. Job is just a great book to, to learn about God. I mean, really. God, Job says at the end, you know, the things he's learned about, and God shows up and just says, you know, look at Behemoth and look at Leviathan, these great, awesome, powerful creatures. And Job says, these are the fringes of God's ways. The greatest things we can know about God. The, the, the billions and trillions of stars in the galaxy, some of which we're just now learning about and some of which we haven't learned about yet. Those are the fringes. That's like the, the very shady edge of just one little side over here. If you could describe God in anthropomorphic terms. One little side of God. You can't even make out the whole picture. You can't say God is unfair. You can't blame God for things in your life or say that maybe he's forgotten you. Maybe he's left you out to dry. Maybe he's abandoned Israel. Maybe all of these things have happened. No, his, his ways can't be measured. His mind, his power cannot be measured. Here's Spurgeon. Spurgeon. He says, when we meditate most and search most studiously, we shall still find ourselves surrounded with unknowable wonders, which will baffle all attempts to sing them worthily. The best adoration of the unsearchable, speaking of God, is to own him to be so and close the eyes in reverence before the excessive light of his glory. Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out, and therefore his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. So don't think that you're going to exhaust your knowledge of God, but we are called to always be learning about God, to growing in our knowledge of him, which then should drive us to live out holy lives before him and serve him and glorify him. So it's a continuous cycle. Learn, grow, live out. Learn, grow, live out. And churches that don't emphasize theology, where they're not learning about God, have a hard time living out the commands of Scripture in a godly life. They can still do it, but it's very difficult. And it's, it's easy to make wrong assumptions and say wrong things to people and think wrong things and fall off into this little heresy that just came up and this bad teaching and this book that showed up at the bookstore and so on. Sometimes we think we're going to learn it all in heaven. What verse is that? Man, you might have some of the big answers. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're not going to care. You're, you're with God. You know, you'll you'll learn some things and that might help you to answer some things in this life, but he doesn't owe us all the answers. And if we have all the answers, that's getting up there saying that we're God. So we'll have some answers, I believe, obviously, just by being with him. But yeah, the secret things belong to God. So there'll be things in this life you can't know. Now, if it's in the Bible, there's no excuse. You still, you're not going to master this book, but you should be trying. You should be trying. Classical proofs of God. We've got two minutes to cover all of this. don't think it's going to happen all today, but There are other ways that people try to prove God outside the Bible, and these are called the classical proofs. They're classical because they've been used since Greek and Roman times. They're not Christian. It doesn't mean they go against the Bible. It just means that they're not developed by scriptural exegesis and theology. Most classical apologists today believe the existence of God must be proven first. So it's kind of a two-step process with those who, R.C. Sproul is, is one of the more famous classical apologists, and they would say, first you prove the existence of God based on a more neutral ground. Then you bring them to scripture and show them the gospel. And see, the, the problem with this, When I won't have time to go into the, the issues with this view, is that the Bible says we already know there's a God. So a classical apologists believe in constructive use of philosophy. And they don't, they don't argue about this. They just say, look, the philosophers are right. And if it's true there, we can still use it. And let's use it today because the, the, the unbeliever, the atheist, doesn't believe in God. So that's our first step. And we have to go to them on their terms, on their turf. Scripture is our turf. Their turf is philosophy or reason. So we go in there first. And they say, classical apologist attempts to show that Christianity is consistent with science or the reason of the mind. And, and, and in the ancient times, in philosophy, science and philosophy were kind of the same thing. So they're just trying to show, look you believe in the same God as me, and then they use an argument that's not based on Scripture. Now, just because it's not based on Scripture doesn't mean it's absolutely wrong, but we have to ask, is it accomplishing the task that we're trying to do, which is what? What's our task when talking to unbelievers? Make them feel good about themselves? What's our task? Make, make them wise to salvation? Yeah. What was the other one? Leave them without excuse. That's kind of do. Yeah, you give them the truth, and they can reject it. That's That's more judgment, or they can accept it and come to Christ. All right, there's four proofs. I'm just going to, I'm going to preview these and we're going to come back. So if you're not here next week, you might leave thinking these are wonderful. And, and they're, they're good in a sense, but they don't take us far enough. Okay, cosmological argument. Where did all this come from? Who or what caused creation? So this, this doesn't say, you know, Romans 1 says you do know God in your heart. No, cosmological says the world was created, right? What's, what's the, the watchmaker? And a lot of those kinds of ideas here that the intelligent design movement will use. Uh, teleological. Where did all this order and beauty come from? Right? Why is it so intricate? Why, why are all these things so intricate? The eyeball and things like that. What's the purpose of all this? Teleology deals with the purpose. Why it was created. What's the reason? So cosmological is, you know, who created all this? And then teleological is more saying... Look how wonderful it is. There must be a designer in all of this. Since the universe and living things exhibit marks of design. There's order. There's consistency. There's unity. There's a pattern. Things don't happen on their own. So this is really, if you're familiar with the intelligent design movement, that's what this is. And it's not a bad movement. It's just, it's not helping us to get to the heart issues of the unbeliever. It's really for, what's the design, intelligent design movement for? Christians to get stronger in their faith and to teach their kids about science. Number three, ontological. This one's fun. You could spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what Anselm meant when he came up with this in the Middle Ages. But if we can conceive of the greatest possible being, then it must exist, right? So the first two were the ancient Greeks, cosmological and then especially Aristotle, theological. Ontological, ontology, it deals with being. So if you can think of it, obviously there's a, at least a being that great. Or you couldn't even conceive of it in your mind if the Creator wasn't at least as big as that. Of course, that's that's kind of interesting. The best one of these is the last one, the moral proof, the moral argument. All people recognize some sense of right and wrong. How do we know what is evil? Why do we fear death and judgment? So that's the best one of all of these. But come back next week when we have class because I want to show you there how we're going to critique these. And why they don't go far enough with the unbeliever, okay? So I'm a little over time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning. It is wonderful to study your word and help us to come from Scripture, to know God's word and take it to the lost, take it to the unbeliever, and not to rely upon our own reasoning, but to go straight to the truth of Scripture, to convict hearts. And that is what is used, Lord, to convert the Spirit through his word. So pray that you would bless our time of worship coming up this morning. In Christ's name, amen.